Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. In this week's pod, we were joined by Shane Forth to discuss navigating the project control landscape, a journey through the decades and beyond. Shane's project controls career began on Phillips Petroleum Tessard? I'm not going to get that right. Tessard Oil Terminal, a 1970s mega project learning the fundamentals of scheduling using manual techniques. Career progression followed with three further mega projects worth tens of billions of pounds in today's terms. His industry leadership, uniting groups and individuals to create project control standards, occupational certifications, career paths, competency frameworks, higher professional recognition, and especially apprenticeship programs. Wow, there was certainly a lot to pack in, Val um, and Martin. It was fascinating to hear how project controls evolved in his time um, and sort of, I guess, from our perspective, where, where we picked up and, and how our career careers sort of developed on from there because we don't often know and realize the, the, the shoulders mm. of the giants we stand on. Um, That's right. And we, we, we complain today about things. And, um, you know, he took us back on how, you know, from from first fights in, in the dockyard or, or, or the construction site all the way through to, you know, planning with – um, hand-drawn schedules and things like that. It was really, really fascinating. But what were the the key things that that stood out for you, Martin? Yeah, I mean that that experience was fascinating. You know, we we thought we had challenges um, in 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 terms of data, but yeah, I really liked his explanation around um, what to look for in a project controls manager and and looking for his um, just using his experience to and seeing um, how you know, how the career path and the evolution of, of someone and the right steps that they should be taking. I thought that was really interesting. How about you, Val? What were your takeaways? Yeah, he's good. I mean, we, we, we really just had a 30 minute monologue on some of his experiences. It's like the kind of guy you want to bring over for a barbecue to have a big chat, but he, he was interesting. And I, I do like the idea that um, we bring on people like him who, you know, we can sit back and relax and listen to quite a storyteller who had a lot of experience um, and see where the project controls profession really formed um you know eventually uh we will miss that kind of knowledge and um and it's great to have those on the pod to be immortalized so it was really great to, to have him on yeah couldn't couldn't agree more well folks we'll leave it there as we say keep listening keep liking and keep paying it forward in today's economic climate construction cost and schedule overruns can be disastrous innate construction software helps you spot risks before they happen their cloud-based solutions give you the real-time insights you need to minimize risk and improve operational efficiency. With Innate, you keep projects on schedule and under budget. Get started today at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T.com. Hello, project people. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Project Chatter podcast. It's always good to have you with us. And Dale and Martin, it's good to see you guys. How are you, Jen? Dale? 
Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, Phil. It's also good to see you. I mean, I almost thought, you know, you were not going to appear on this episode and I was I was ready to give you, you know, all the stick I could give you, but you made it. Damn it. God damn it. Those bloody Aussies. <laughs> uh, Martin, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. Yeah. I was almost primed to say we don't need Val. Like last episode, you can, but turns out we do. You, you can try. I mean, <laughs> but I am the comedy relief of this uh, this outfit. So you do need me, I think, a little bit. Uh, but let's, rec- let's recognize our guest, our guest of honor, let's call it, um, someone in the Project Controls field who's been there for a very, very long time, and um, I'm looking forward to this as much as the rest of you. Shane Forth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Val, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Now, we were just talking about, before we press record, we were talking about being plonked into Project Controls. Let's talk about how you were plonked into Project Controls, Mr. Shane. Yes, Where did so- it start for you, mate? How did I get plunged into Project Controls? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really funny, uh, or not. Uh, I come from, I was born in Hesel near Hull, and uh, two years old, moved to Bridlington in East Yorkshire. It's a holiday resort in, in, near Scarborough. And uh, at 19 years old, my parents uh, had some kind of separation. Things weren't right. And I went to stay with my brother in Middlesbrough. I'd been working for Sand and Crabble Company in a very boring job as a sales invoice clerk. Licking envelopes. <laughs> anyway, I went to Middlesbrough. Uh, a lot of work on in those days in industry. I had nine interviews in 12 days on the back of five GCSEs. And I ended up working with Simon Cards, Simcab Division, on the Phillies Petroleum Oil Processing Plant at um, Teesside. It's a big job. Uh, started out in the stores. Bit boring, Cardex systems, ancient stuff we don't use now, no computers in sight. Uh, and I was lucky enough to um, get out a bit more on some work and see what people did. And I wanted to get a career doing something meaningful. And I saw this assistant planning guy drawing graphs and bar charts and sticky tape, no computers again. And I used to enjoy graphs, I <laughs> was at school. And I thought, I can do that. So, um, with that, I was fortunate in those days that I was working for a lot of people, but I was really able to almost prioritise the work to help my career direction that I was starting to choose. Because in those days, things actually weren't quite as tight on staff as they are now, I would say. You had room for the joker in the pack, somebody who could have some fun, and they could be tolerated because they helped raise people's performance, actually. Mm. Um but I was able to orientate myself towards the people who were running the planning and scheduling. Um, so, And then I had a really good boss called Peter Gale who told me about DuPont and Polaris and how network analysis all started in the late 50s. Talked about IGA numbers and ancient history for some of the folks who might be listening, I guess, and, and how to how hand-draw network. And it really excited me <laughs> a lot. And I thought, this is for me. Um, so I carried on learning and doing at Simon Carves in that first job. Um, and I think I did okay, you know. People liked what I did. And uh, it, it was really great. So And it was exciting. Um, so I got into it, got involved with about 56 contractors on site, a big labor force. It was a, about $6 billion worth of project today. So this was my first one, and so many characters, people who'd worked in the um, military service, you know, in, um, coming out of the 50s into the 60s, 
What I didn't realize was that in 1976, at just 20 years old, network analysis and planning and scheduling, if you like the forerunner of project controls in a broader sense, starting in when I was born in the late 50s, 20 years seems a long time ago when you're 1920. But actually, it was a young profession, wasn't it? All the planners mm. really were ex-engineers, practically speaking, um, except me. <laughs> and Because uh, uh, I haven't got a craft or a trade. Um, but anyway, um, it was good. The thing I felt I was missing in the two and a half years I was there was that practical experience on site. And so I wrote off to all of the, there were three main piping mechanical contractors on that uh, on that project. And I wrote to all three. I'd ended up with Kappa Pipe Services. Um, and that was on some off-plots work at ICI Wilton. My boss uh, became an MP. That was Frank Cook from Teesside. Um, and it's funny. He was drawing hand-drawn bar charts for some pipelines we were running at ICI Wilton down to Seal Sands on Teesside. And I spotted a mistake. And I politely pointed it out, thinking I'm going to get a right bollock in here. Uh, and he was very gracious and pleased that I had done and thanked me for it, mm. which is, uh, in those days, was quite unusual because we were in a bit of a tough guy macho era. It wasn't nice all the time. It's um, yeah, it was quite an adversarial industry then. Lots of labour disputes and lots of bad behaviour from people that, that wouldn't be tolerated today. Um but he was good about it. And um, so uh, having uh, left the big project, I ended up on a lot of smaller mechanical projects. I can remember going to, um, so there's a few jobs at ICI Wilton. There was a caustic chlorine plant. And I got into work packaging there. And we were actually doing manually, you know, the make ready needs that you get on last planner or collaborative planning, where you, you make sure you've got your drawings, you've got your materials, you've got your resources before you hit the plant. Um, we were doing that then, and we were doing productivity reporting by man hours on work packages of maybe 15 isomet piping isometrics, because it was all piping and mechanical. Um, and effectively, we had a CPI in man hour terms, but of course, we called it a productivity factor. Mm. Uh, you know, but it was the same principle uh, without the terminology, and it cost it did evolve further in years to come, which we can get to. Um, so doing some of that stuff really early on. And then they sent me to um Kappa's, uh sent me to Formica in North Shields, and that wasn't like a petrochemical job, it was a building job. And I there was a the site foreman who I was working with after a long um I had to get a bus ride fifty miles because I couldn't drive then. He knew everything about everything, and I'm not good at visualizing things if they're not built. I can't picture what's not there. And we had this site. The drawings were weird. <laughs> they weren't what I was used to. And he's walking around this. This There's almost nothing there. And he's, he's looking at what it is, a bit of a building. And I'm puzzled to hell. And then they had me drawing pipe support details with no training, thrown in the deep end. I had the worst moment of my career on that job. The client, between me and an estimator at Kappa's, we'd missed the main steam line. So it didn't go into my schedule. <laughs> the plan got hand-drawn by ripped up in half and shot in the bin by the client. You've got to get over it, haven't you? <laughs> you know, 
Um, and it, it, thankfully, I never ended up back in that sort of place again. Um, but I learned a lot because the way you got trained in those days was you got chucked in the deep end. But when you got... So they kind of had me as the site agent, which is the equivalent of project manager. And when you got that, you couldn't... It got a bit too much because I was only 24 uh, by then. When you got that it was a bit too much, they brought someone in to bail you out. Yeah? And rescue you. But you'd been challenged and stretched. Uh, so quite tough, quite stressful. Um, you know, I think these days you'd have to think about doing that and who, with and how, because not everyone could survive it, you know. But you learn a lot in that way. And um, so with Cabbers, I worked on quite a lot of mechanical contractors of different shapes and sizes. Um, Beecham's at Pharmaceuticals was an example. Uh, Beecham's at Irving in Scotland. And that's where I I, um, I stayed in a pub for six months and wore the kilt on me last night. <laughs> you know, they got me in the kilt. Um, and I realised that Scotch people are actually quite generous with a half and a half um, in terms of beer and a whiskey. But uh, it was a good project. Um, interestingly, Bechtel were the client so I'm 25 years old. I'm working for Capital Pipe Services, who weren't the, the premium necessarily piping contractor of the day. They were sound. But Bechtel, of course, big still. They were using full-blown end value hand-drawn on the reporting. So I was feeding some of that information in, in 1981. And that got me interested in end value then. Um, progress reporting was interesting. We had two projects on the go. And... Uh, me, me on one project and another plan on another. I was faithfully walking the site and booking the progress incorrect. From the, we didn't call them rules of credit, but it was the same principle for measuring our pipework installation. The other guy was booking unsupported pipework as fully supported and claiming all the progress. Then all of a sudden, instead of getting the 200 meters a week there, they got 80 meters installed and there was hell on. So we, I, had, I walked the park with a guy and sorted it out with him and we, Bechtel was struggling out of handling. I said, just delay your progress report a week. Miss a report. Just say you couldn't get the report out. And we'll, we'll do something to catch some of it up, which we did. Um, so, But there were so many experiences there on those piping jobs of different shapes and sizes compared to the larger project that I'd been on at first. But it also gave me a thought about scalability of project controls. You don't want a sledgehammer to crack a nut. You don't want the big processes on every project you need to be enough you know the right amount of stuff and it also needs to be something people can cope with um so that that was the 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 mechanical the lots of other projects with cappers but that was some of them anyway and um you know that went on till 1981 and then i was on another job at uh Pembroke. that was pcc Texaco refinery so that was a kind of continuation of um what had happened on the first job in many ways, but with Snam Progetti as the client. And it was still all manual manual stuff uh, that we were reporting on, and that was on the insulation work. Um, uh, and then great experience was um, 1985, I, uh, I, I went to Kuwait to do a year. Uh, well, I was going to do, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I went to Kuwait on a Mina Abdullah refinery project and um why did i go to kuwait uh well the reason is i've met my wife to be 
she lost her first husband in an accident locally at British Steel. Am I rubbing on too much, by the way? No, no, no. Keep going. This is great. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, ever, like them batteries that don't run out. <laughs> if you haven't asked any more questions, that's all. Um, as long as you're okay. Um, so I'd met her and I, she, she'd lost her husband. She was still grieving, but she knocked me socks off. So I thought the only way I'm going to win her over is to clear off and hope she misses me. <laughs> so I went to Kuwait and what a great job that was. Um, uh, the, you know, talking to people who worked in Vietnam and a massive refinery. And with my piping experience, I became, we had 20 schedulers in the central part of what would today be a PMO. Um, 20 schedulers, equivalent number of cost engineers. That was in the central office. And then we had all the, what we call field office engineers out on the, the process units, because this was a huge complex. Um, still using the sticky tape and the flexi curves, the rubber flexi curves for the S curves and all that. But we got the first version of Primavera going. We came off mainframe systems to um, five and a quarter inch floppy disks and Primavera, uh, analog style, if you like, before <laughs> P3 and Windows, um, and pen plotters, dot matrix printers, and all that stuff. And um, we um, cracked on with um, doing all that stuff. And it was just a fantastic experience. Now, I did my year, and I could have stayed on. Uh, they wanted me to stay, but I wanted to get back home and see if I could win my wife over, which she wasn't my wife at the time, of course. That all worked out, and we've been together 37 years now. Um, mm-hmm. 80, yeah, 37 years. I think it is. 87 we got married, 36 years. So that all worked out. My plan of clearing off worked out, and I had a great time in Kuwait on a great job with lots of experience. I got the nickname Scenario because my optional what-if planning that I was doing for some of the work, they started calling these the different scenarios. But I had, what, 50,000 pipe spools on two fabricators, one in Korea, one in the Middle East. Uh, plus, I had three process units of my own to do the master planning from it, sort of level two, you would say, today. Plus the piping for the whole complex. And I'm 29 years old. You know, what an experience. Mm. Um, so that was there um, so did my year and uh, came back to the UK uh, so what I, I was on the next job was Bibby's Edible Oil Refinery in Bootle in Liverpool um, and that was uh, Caxias were the contractor and um, that was again they were actually starting to use um, spreadsheets and we'd use them in Kuwait, but again, floppy disk Lotus one two three on floppy. So as Caxis were using them for progress measurement. The drawings were weird because uh, there were no isometrics, only general arrangement drawings for the piping. And um, I did three months there on that, and then red car blast furnace shutdown. Job cards, uh, and everyone was handwriting the um, the descriptions on the job cards which took ages. So each draw was written on a, on a pre-printed job card and then you measured the progress in 10% chunks against the rules of credit. And you bagged up your materials on the back and acknowledged you'd got the materials. But what happened was um, that took ages. So I got all the DBS3 and I set some labels up to save people writing it because it was all in a flipping system anyway, <laughs> you know, and uh, figured that out. Um, 
And that was a tremendous job because in three weeks, it was three shifts, 24 hours working. And I've never seen, every day walking around the site, never seen such progress visually. Every day you saw the progress on that job. They've sadly, uh, well, sadly from a nostalgia point of view, I suppose, uh, demolished that blast furnace um, only a couple of months ago. Um, but yeah, that was the next one. Uh, so what did I do after that? Ah, yeah, that's um, ICI. I wanted to get more multidisciplined. I was getting a bit of this label as a bit of a piping person, yeah? Uh, you know, and I thought, I'm still planning. Project controls haven't fully been invented in the UK. Um, so when you get multidisciplined, and I, uh, so I um, got an opportunity to go to ICI in Blackpool. Not a bad posting. Uh, so I went over to Blackpool on a project called M10. It was a £10 million project in those days. Is that, this was 86? No. Yeah, 86. Uh, have I missed anything out? I've missed out size will be with with Amic Press. <laughs> that was that was another good one. Uh, again, we can't talk about everything, can we? But that was a good project. Um, no, did that come after? That came after. I went to ICI on M10. A construction manager and five staff: mechanical guy, a civil guy, um, an electrical guy, and myself. So as well as the, the hand-drawn bar charts and networks, we're still hand-drawing networks, I operated the material management system, Cradle of Grave, which was mainframe with a modem, um, which was an ICI system, which had all the principles that I've seen in systems since, but it was just all the tech. Um, so that was material controller planner on there. Best boss, one of the three best bosses I ever had on that project the construction manager, the main guy for ICI, was new in the role. And I've always been one to make suggestions and thoughts of what we can do in situations all my career. And um, this guy was good because what he did that was different to a lot of people was, first of all, yeah, he'd accept some suggestions and implement them, and that's good, and that's always happened. But there have been times and cultures, especially years ago, where people say, oh, no, we tried that 20 years ago. It didn't work. We're not doing that. Six months later, they're claiming the credit, like, and implementing it themselves. But this guy, if he didn't, wasn't going to do something I suggested, what he did, which felt really great to me, was he'd say, thanks for suggesting it. It's a really good idea, but the reason I can't do it is, and he'd give me the big picture that he had from whatever he was dealing with, with the client or anyone else, or the stakeholders, and give me an explanation of why not. And you know what? That's something I haven't forgotten because it feels a lot better than somebody just refusing to do something and sometimes just being a complete arse, to be honest. Yeah? So that was really good. Um, I missed out. My first boss asked, uh, taught me something I've never forgotten, which was in my early planning days, which was, Ask the right questions and get the right answers. And I've never forgot it. And it's something I tell other people. But I also recognise that's actually not easy. It's easy to say, but it's not easy to do, is it? You've got to have some knowledge and some understanding to do that. But luckily, to have someone give me a message like that early in my career. But yeah, so that was a good boss on ICI, good project. Um, and it was after that that I went on to Sizewell B with... Um, 
with what became AMEC, uh, Press Construction, um, who at that time were not a nuclear contractor. Uh, they were strictly on the general mechanical services. You wouldn't let them near the reactor at the time. Yeah. But we had good project work. Um, and Sizewell B was actually a good project. I think if you look at nuclear performance on projects, uh, new builds, it's uh, apart from, I think, China, uh, it's not been a great success, the timescales historically on nuclear new builds. But Sizewell didn't do bad. And we had a follow-on option. So we, for three more, believe it or not, we had Hinkley Wilfer and Sizewell C all on the agenda back in 1988-89 to follow on with the CEGB, who I later learned were pioneers in project planning anyway. Um, with the, and They called the network the longest irreducible series of events, I learned. So there's a thing. But anyway, um, we had these three following options. So what that meant was you bid the job and some of your design costs were classed as one time because some of the design, not all of it, you could replicate in the other locations. Obviously, the location and the foundations might be different and stuff, but there was stuff you could replicate. So we were all set to do three more. That would have probably seen me career through to now anyway. <laughs> not quite, but... Uh, Government's changed, uh, needs changed, and we ended up with nuclear and electric. It all got fragmented. So all that idea of moving the resources from one project to the next to the next in phasing to get an efficient build, it, it went to nothing. It didn't happen. And we've, we've been back into talking about that recently, haven't we, in recent years, if you've been following the nuclear story. So um, opportunity missed back then. Um, there you go in terms of that. So, but Sadwell B was a good project. It came out well. Um, and um, I was able to, because of the, I was able to manage my role on Sadwell B and be able to do some bid bid planning for them as well uh, on jobs internationally as well as UK because it didn't occupy me full time entirely because I was cracking on with it. <laughs> so they found me quite useful. I also they offered me a career as a, uh, but I also felt that their attitude to planning wasn't strong enough for where I wanted to go with my career. So I'm looking towards the thought of moving on, and they offered me project management, and I so believed in project control that I said that's not what I want to do. I said you need a planning manager, and that could be me. <laughs> And that didn't happen. <laughs> um, and so a year later, uh, actually, I was going to leave and I gave them a second chance when they told me how much they valued me. So there's me giving them a chance. That doesn't really work that way, does it? Um, but a year later, things hadn't changed. They did change. The, the, the company grew and changed and acquired other parts and became something bigger and stronger. But like a lot of these transformations, they don't always happen as quick as expected. And I, w I was told something would happen, and it didn't happen, but it came later. So off I went um, after that, um, after press construction. And um, where did I go? I've got to check my CV. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, man. Where did I go to press? I had it to hand in case. I. Uh... Oh, yeah, I went to John Lang's. Went to Langs at Grangemouth. And why did I go there? 
the big planning tool of the day, instead of a second raid tool, was, was Artemis, which may or may not be something people have heard of these days. Um, it was used in the offshore yards and various places. And I, I felt that although I didn't want to be wedded to a computer, I had ambitions to do more than that. I needed to understand the best technology of the day in order to become a planning manager and you know later project control manager. So John Langs were using OpenPlan. And what a great system that was uh, in its MS-DOS days. Um, absolutely fantastic, really. It's not Windows. It's still, you know, um, the screens are not great. But And all the S-curves, histograms, bar charts, scan charts, whatever, I, had to, I wrote uh, code to produce them in two programming languages. Because it wasn't like Windows. It had to do with the hardware, yeah? 70,000 lines of code, but I was managing uh, managing the project as well on the planning with job cards again and stuff. Um, but I cracked that, and that got me in good stead for going back. AMEC then asked me back, the press asked me back. I just spell with Red Path Engineering on some offshore work. Um, funny enough, that hit Artemis, but I was doing bids for them for a short while. But AMEC asked me back. Um, and I got the call and I said, I'd just been three months at this job at Redpath Engineering in 92 and I, I was enjoying it. Working for someone I'd worked with before at Cappers, I said, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm okay where I am, thank you. And then my wife said to me, because she'd always supported my career massively, she said, you've just turned the job you've all, down the job you've always wanted, planning manager, you've just turned it down. And I, said, I thought about it, I said, you're right. <laughs> so I rung him back and in I went, you know, uh, did the same thing there, put the, uh, well, one thing I did was write the code and produce the, the reports again. And the best comment I got was when um, British Gas said, we like your Artemis reports. And they were, they were of course, open plan. <laughs> but they love this name. But the big thing was we were moving from those practical engineers doing their planning on paper to uh, the clients were shedding their staff and putting more onus on the contractor to do quality, safety, and planning and project controls. And the guys I had, some of them had never seen a keyboard. Or if they had, they were playing a golf game on a floppy disk. Yeah. And we're confronted with this fact we've got this, you know, we, they introduced the open plan, which I'd used at Langs. And so it was a toss-up with that and Primavera. And at the time... Uh, I helped them with bringing open planning. We got it going. But the, some of the guys were struggling because they were really field engineers, very, very good planners in the practical sense. Absolutely no criticism intended at all. But culture change and big change. And, and if, you, if you're at the later end of your career, some people do lose the incentive to learn. Uh, and we're all built different ways, aren't we? Mm. Uh, so and and then we got to that stage. You've all heard about the computer jockeys, haven't you? The phrase "computer jockeys." So what happened? We got that idea of the 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 doubters, the non the the, the operations guys. Someone say when they saw what came out of the system, it'd be oh, you just press a button. <laughs> you know, they didn't, they didn't know what we did. No, they saw the end result and thought you just press a button and there it is. You know, um, so went on like that. But the biggest thing was. We clearly needed to upskill the existing planners as much as we could and bring in new blood. 
So first of all, I sat with the planners individually on projects as I got around them and helped them get as far as they could with some of them were okay. You know, three out of 17 were fine. They were the younger guys and they knew what the computer looked like. Help them get as far as they can. But we needed new people. Uh, I used to say to some of the ops guys, put two planners on that project we're bidding and I'll turn you out. Put a computer guy and a practical guy and I'll turn you out two top-notch planners who can do both, which is what you really need. But you know what? Bidding was tight. Um it's like we can't afford to do that. It, but to be fair, it cost a couple of grand for a PC. Then it cost the same to train a planner on in three days on the software. So I look back and I can see that part of the doubting. But there certainly was an idea of it's only some extent planning is only there to please the client, and in some extent the main motive was solely profit. We weren't the industry hadn't grown up like it has today. It was coming. You know, so um, at that time, it was quite frustrating that I wasn't able to bring the people in. And, and then people started moving from staff to contract. The big thing was people started working contracts. Now, I've got this thing about contract planners and project controllers. I absolutely value them the same if they do a good job. Because although I've always worked staff till I left full-time industry in 29, um, they, I had the same choices as them. I could have chose to do the same, yeah? So as long as you do a good job, that's fine by me. They may sort of earn a better package if you look at it a certain way. It's quite frustrating when you've got a skills shortage and some of the guys just ain't up to it. But you, you've got to fill a seat, yeah? So at that time, it was hard to develop people, um, put the systems in over 100 projects with open plan all over the place. So I'm off the, off the discrete project dedicated, of course. Um, but influencing everywhere. And um, that went on. Uh, from 92, I did, what, 11 years? Was it that first stint? Was it? Yeah, I think so. I'm glad to look again. Um, oh, 92 to 98. Oh, no, I've carried on. Oh, right. Project controls came in towards the back end of the 90s. More. I aren't saying it didn't exist anywhere else, but it, uh, what happened was AMEC acquired Matthew Hall Engineering. So in Darlington, we were mainly a mechanical piping contractor with a smaller design office of about 50 people. Yeah. So we were small design, big construction. Um, Matthew Hall became AMEC Engineering when they joined the AMEC group. And they had projects where we started doing internal joint ventures. And I was involved in some joint venture procedure working groups in AMEC, working with the guys from London. Now, that was interesting because what we had was some of the folks there, because they were in a bigger company and they were the designers and we were the dirty construction workers, <laughs> had this we-know-it-all attitude. Not all of them, but some of them did. And it was like we were the country cousins, you know, in, in um now, that was some of the attitude, but I then met my second uh, great boss, a guy called Tony Reid, and I'll mention his name because he's just been, he's just a fantastic guy. He was running project services in AMEC Engineering. He brought these working groups together, and he, he didn't have that 
us and them internal attitude at all. It was totally what's best for the company. And he believed in project controls. And he also introduced me to the Association of Cost Engineers and what they were doing in 97 uh, as their part in the vocational qualifications that I'd never heard of, which, uh, you know, lead into the apprenticeship stuff I've been involved in since. And when I saw those qualifications that Tony highlighted to me, I looked at them and I thought, for practitioners, there's stuff here my planners and project controllers can't do. The risk bit, there were some gaps, you know, for example, yeah? The stuff they can't do. I brought risk analysis in quite early. We got paid 200 grand on one project just because we did one on a completed job. The client looked, I did the risk analysis. Other people were learning it. We only ever had room for a handful of experts on that because it, we didn't do that on every job. The client, just because we did one, that was enough confidence in us to say, yes, you've shown the risk to that compressor being delivered on time. Here's 200 grand. <laughs> so that was wow. a good win back then, yeah? Um, but Tony, um, so I saw these gaps, that being an example, and I thought these qualifications are great. Still hadn't been getting the resources, still too tight to put two planners on one job, unless it was a bigger job, yeah, uh, and build build the capabilities. Uh, but I got into some discussions with, uh, things were improving now. So I got into discussions, uh, we had a business improvement initiative internally for all, it's a bit like an operational excellence program would be today. Um, so that brought the group together from all its divisions across the UK. And that gave me the chance to say, for instance, let's get off carbon paper purchase orders and and trans drawing transmitters on the lease makers of access, if nothing else. Yeah, let's get our progress reporting off, you know, geared up a bit. Um, material management, Aberdeen have got a good system. I'm going to go and talk to them. You know, we were able to do that where previously it was taboo. You know, we couldn't do these things because it was all little silos. Yeah, so it was breaking down through the evolution of management becoming more evolving as it has over the years you know um so i hope this is okay because you're asking me any questions <laughs> yeah we're going to jump in uh, as soon as you wrapped up uh, shane <laughs> you only carry on okay um so material management i remember sticking the the, the hand draw the, the sheets out of the procedures that took you from requisition to um assessing the you know bid analysis to placing the order to goods received notes and everything else I stuck all the forms outside my office where you keep writing down the same drawing numbers on every sheet and said, that's why we need a computer. <laughs> you know? And so we got this kind of thing going. And um, But fundamentally, it's about the people. And how do we... So I saw an opportunity to try and improve the people situation now that the company was waking up. Um uh, and so I said, what we need is, let's not call them technical clerks because that's not very glamorous. That doesn't sound like a career. Let's say we're looking for project control assistance. And that's what we mean. And I put a proposal together which got support. I wanted to put these guys, and, and, and I was able to bring actually three guys in, four guys in, which was good at the time. It was a major, major sort of thing. Working centrally with me, I'd, I'd done the function on my own. Everyone else worked in the operations, but I'd, and I actually got a better return on the central budget with four people working with me and hiring them out to the projects than I did on my own, where people didn't want to pay for me <laughs> at the time. So 
got these four guys in. They'd been doing progress reporting and bits in the offshore yards and stuff, but they were 22, 23, 24 years old. Got them in, uh, helping teach them the stuff, getting them out onto the projects, getting the value um, seen by the operations and project managers, and things were getting really good. And they made their contributions. Front end, kick off the job, get the planning in place and the project controls first instead of, you know, get that extra effort in early on to get everything in place. They were able to do that and then put them on something else. Uh, so I was able to manage that resource into the projects uh, and it worked really good. And, and then it, the other thing was my established uh, planning engineers, we, we can't know what project control in a minute, uh, they... Uh, I, it, they didn't know each other because they're all on remote sites. So I put a proposal for a planner's workshop where we bring them together. We'd hardly got email in those. In fact, we hadn't got email in those days. The invitation went out in envelopes, which had loads of addresses in squares on them, orange envelopes. You wrote the next place the envelope was going with whatever was in it. That's what you did. Uh, but I went to get these planners to come to a workshop in Darlington where they would all share their experiences and get to know each other. And I, the 17 of them there was, and what happened was um, half the ops guys who had the power in some of the regions, they were still a bit of the old school. I'd say to them, go and check with your line managers, your ops guys, that you're okay to come on this date, three months' time. And some of the guys pulled these folks out. <laughs> And said they're not coming. So the first try I had at a workshop, I cancelled it because I was going to get four people. So what's the point? Anyway, I got a phone call on the day of the workshop. One of the guys from Scotland who'd been pulled out was there <laughs> looking for this workshop. Oh man. Anyway, you keep going, don't you? I had another go at it and got it up and running. And we had all sorts of Present, they were presenting to each other, learning off each other. Um, plus, I was able to show them some of the things we were doing from the centre that maybe hadn't reached some of them. Um, and we had learning and development people in there and everything. Uh, and I ran three of those before I left AMEC in 2002. Um, when I went back in 06, and I'd been developing these guys, when I went back in 06, I'll fill the gap in in a minute. We'd got into project controls, by the way. I'd looked after Amec in Crawley Oil and Gas, and that was project controls. Um, I've missed out Convero. That was a, if you know uh, Prism, Harry's Prism. Yeah. So Amec acquired, a, I am rambling, aren't I? Amec acquired a company now called Agro Manenko from I Canada. Think, yeah, Shane, we'll probably jump into this questioning and answering because you've, you've got such a long career. <laughs> If we went through everything in your CV, I think we need a part two, which we may do anyway, Shane, because I think it was lovely to hear because I think for us, um, especially the manual ways of doing things, you know, we, we didn't grow up in that way. And I think for a lot of the listeners, it would have been interesting to hear how manual was and, um, and they bitch about today and they've got computers. Can't believe it, Shane. Unbelievable. Um, look, I wouldn't mind hearing maybe three, you know, three things you see in the profession that have progressed. Um, that have impressed you over the years. Three things that have impressed me. Yeah, yeah. So one is the um, 
the realization of how important the data is that's coming through now. Mm-hmm. It's took a long time, um, and the the whole aspect of that part of it being absolutely critical. And I think just about everybody is aware of that now, not blind to it or not resistant to it. The thing that I think has impressed me is that's one thing, that the waking up, there's a bit of a wake-up call and people are now on board more than they were. Is that what you're feeling? Because I've been out of it for years just training. So is, mm. is that what you feel, that, that people are more pretty supportive now of Project Control? Because I see it more, I think. And I was seeing it as I was getting in the, the latter 10 years of my career. Yeah. So I think, the, if you like, the embedding of Project Controls has been a core function, not an option, would be one of the things that's impressed me. Um, the other thing is the efforts of many, many people uh, to try and stem, uh, try and build the resource, help build the resource to sustain Project Controls since about 1997. Um, that's a massive thing that's gone on with so many people. Uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of them outside of the immediate domain. It's a huge effort that's took place. And yet we still find it hard, don't we, to find those good planners. Yep. So you could look at it and say, we know better off. But I'll tell you what, if we hadn't done it, God knows where we'd be. There's been a huge effort. And 300 people have got a career out of it from apprenticeships. Uh, I started with an apprenticeship in 20. 20- or seven, 14 people. And with all these people that have got together on the back of that and the trailblazers and everything else, that's three, four, 300 in excess of 300 apprentices. So I think the building of resources to try and keep pace with the need is impressive, even if it hasn't solved the resource crisis fully. Uh, it would, we wouldn't even be there. Um so those are two things that have impressed me, I think, the, the, the those two particular things. Um, but you're asking for a third one that's impressed me on Project Control. So let me have a little think about that. And I, I'm good. it's good that you got me thinking instead of talking, actually. <laughs> um, so um, mm, I think the the professional bodies and their contribution is another thing. The number of professional bodies now that are contributing and waking up to it as well is another big thing. I mean, the the APM have just released today the the senior management um, uh, document on, you know, project controls for senior management. Why should they be interested? Even though we've got that big improvement in, in response to project controls and recognition of the need, they're doing more for that. Uh, the sources of cost years have done a lot of the years. I had 20 years with them on on their committee um, a couple of times as vice president. But the professional bodies and collectively have done a lot of good stuff. And uh, I think that's been a success because that gives it some credibility as well. If you're not mm. backed by professional bodies in what you do and the career paths and everything else, there's nothing there, is there? Um, so that's three things that come to mind. Um, yeah, that's great. And that's it's good. great that you're asking me stuff. Yeah. Well, I think we get we get a lot of um, but that last point is pretty interesting, and I'll, I'll probably ask you something about that, and then pass on to Dale and Martin. But I think yeah. with um, we get a lot of different feedback about the institutions. I think at some point they were productive and supportive and um, resourceful, uh, and now the challenge is, I think, that 
most information is hidden behind a paywall and you can only access it if you're a member. And and that does mean that you have to be a member of several organizations, not just one. What do you what do you say to that? Uh well I'd point to the practice framework straight away. Mm. If you know what that is. As an example of something that is freely available. Uh, do, you, do you know the practice framework? The practice, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that that's freely available. Um I know the I know there's training in it and you can pay to be trained in it and become a, a practice expert or whatever. But if you know your stuff, you don't really need to do that. You know, it's yep. something there that you can use if you want to as part of it. Uh, but yeah, there is a, there is a, you're right. There's an element of commercialization as well in some of the professional bodies, maybe some territorial stuff, but um, yeah, there's a bit of that, but I think still there's some good there that wasn't there 20 years ago. I've got, don't forget, I'm looking back at when it was nothing. Yeah, <laughs> so when you yeah say exactly. What's improved, I'm looking back <laughs> further than you guys in a way. Yeah, yeah true. That and is it true. It was just something that nobody wanted, almost mm. <laughs> at all. Nobody, <laughs> you know, virtually, or understood. So I look at it that way. Um, I also found um, academia has been quite good. Um, I do a lot with academia and um, lectures and things, and I actually doing my own MSc was a fantastic thing to do at fifty odd years old. Um, you know. So academia's uh, got a part to play. Uh, it, some of the people, at least, are really good and supportive. Um, and the ones that make it real world rather than boffin, <laughs> they're, they're the ones that, 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 and I can think of one or two people that do, are good as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I get your point, Dale, you know. Uh, Val, sorry. Yeah, I get your point. Um it's an interesting point though shane if i jump in there because Mm. i think i think if if we play both sides of the argument is at a certain stage when you grow large as an institution you got to sort of keep the lights on to some extent and so you got to you got to try and you know create some sort of revenue but at the same time how do you how do you keep growing the industry at the same yeah. time. And it's a tough one because listening to your story, and it's fascinating listening to your story, the evolution of our profession. And, um, you know, it's, it's great to hear that because we obviously started at a point in time when a lot had already evolved. And that uh-huh. perspective that you're giving us is, is really, really interesting to, to see where we've come from. But I guess for me, I wanted to get your insight into how long do you think it takes to create a project controls professional that sort of is well-rounded? Let's say someone that could, let, let's say project controls manager level, right? What makes a good project controls manager? What length of experience? What breadth of, yeah. of, of discipline? What, what does that look like? You know, because we, we've spoken to the likes of the Paul Gugers, you know, is it, is it, one year times 10 or is it 10 years, you know, varied experience and all that yeah. type of thing. What is that for you? That's good. And it's a good question. I can, I, I think I can help you with that because it's something I've been involved in as I've been helping develop people. Uh, so we talked today about, don't we, about career paths and competency frameworks. And I have been involved in both. And some of that was quite early. So if I, uh, I would say uh, in 2007, when we started the apprenticeship, these school leavers, 15 to 18 years old, one was 15 actually, 
they needed to know what this career was and what it meant, yeah, and where it would go. And if you ain't got a career path, uh, it's not going anywhere visible, yeah. So, and and there are two sorts, and and and, and I put my thinking into the first one I drew up that got adopted into this scheme, uh, and it was a linear career path. So the and, and the way that looked was, you do four years in an apprentice, and if you've got the right training which you should have if the apprentice is trained properly because we have the diploma, the, the, the qualifications developed. You come out in a situation where you could project control manage the smaller projects, maybe up to, I don't know, a couple of million, I'm making it up, but not not those billions of dollars ones, yeah? Um, and you could certainly play a part in a project control team fully as a practitioner um on on those smaller to medium projects yeah but i think are we if we're talking about the serious projects i think then what i look at there is you've probably got to go five years beyond that nine years in and some people are in more of a hurry than that but and this is an average thing isn't it because some people can develop quickly but i would probably say you need some war wounds and you need some experience of things going wrong on more than one project and ideally in different sectors, different shapes and sizes, yeah, and different experiences. So I think you need to be about nine years in, and then you've got a chance of it. It could be longer. And I'd, so I drew a career path that actually what, what, what was happening was, and then there's this sort of issue of if you've got a project control shot and you're developing people, they might see a glamouring going and being the PM, yeah? Which is fine if that leads to a pathway that somebody spans off into project manager or project director later, great. But it's a company decision on what they need, isn't it? So, the, but on the straight line option, yeah, I, I'll send you a copy actually because I, I, without looking at it, I'm guessing the numbers I did all that time ago. <laughs> it is 2007, I did it. But I'll no, send no. you the linear. Uh, but I would say it's certainly 10 years. You, you need nine or 10 years behind you to be fully rounded. Uh, it, it, you might get away with it with less, but you'd be fast tracker. You'd be a, a really super person, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. You need some experience and depth. Um, but on the smaller projects, you could be doing it after four years, you know. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then there's this aspect of the project control generalist versus the the planner or the cost engineer or the estimator, yeah, and all that stuff, yeah. And if you've been fully rounded as being able to handle at least two of those pumpkins very well, and one of them know enough about, that's why it takes that time in that case. So I'll send you a copy of that because that'll have the right timings on that I came up with. I'm kind of guessing. Yeah. No, but it's, it's, good, it's good that we have a, a, an estimate or a guesstimate. Yeah, uh, and I'll send you a copy. But what we'll do is we'll we'll try and make that copy available to the listeners as well because we have show notes. If there's any links that we can post yeah. in there, we'll certainly put them in there. Um, but it's good to hear from you because you you have that perspective. I think yeah. that you know a lot of others don't because you've seen the trajectory of the profession, you've seen how it's evolved. Yeah. You mentioned data, um, and you, you you know you you've seen the skill sets required and is moving at pace. And if mm. we can accelerate some some professionals, I think all all the all the better because we do need more more. Yeah talent in the industry um i just want to ask you one more before i hand to martin um and this is around i guess where you see 
the level of seniority of a project controls professional. Do you see a project controls director at board level for organizations? Is that a role that is needed, required for organizations these days, particularly taking from uh, Antonio Nieto Rodriguez, who talks about we're, you know, we're in a, a project economy these days rather than sort of operations. Um, do you see that as a role we should be adopting in organizations? I think that uh, that potentially is a, a, a role in some cases, and I think it, it's obviously organisation specific, and they may not even be called a project controls director, but fulfilling that essence. So, for instance, when I was at Wesser, we used to have the context of a project business manager treating the project as a business. Um, but you're talking about the organisation as a whole, the enterprise, aren't you? Yes. Um, and I think we have that for commercial. We've had that for years because commercial is the money and the money for all that not all projects the driver shouldn't always be money first we all know the triangle i think the balance triangle <laughs> and for all that it shouldn't always be the first thing it culturally historically is because of the profit sort of motive and everything else yeah um so i think there is room for that to happen and i think it will be enlightened companies that will take that on board fully and it won't happen big there's not going to be a big bang on it but i think there is a need but it will be a really depthful thing that would embrace the project controls, the commercial, the business side of the enterprise to get to board level, you know, um, or at least one step below, if not as a, an absolute supreme, if it's there's four or five advisors below board level and your company's project. And let's be right, more and more companies now are projectized than they were. The word project is used for lots of things that wouldn't be called a project historically, yeah? Then getting out of engineering and construction, thinking more broadly, yes, I think there is. But I've always been ambitious for project controls. Has it happened? I'm not sure. Will it happen? I hope so. Will it happen overnight? Absolutely not. But yeah, let's be ambitious for what we believe in. I think. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And uh, talking about being ambitious. Um... I mean, can I ask you if you? Do you agree? Do you think they should be? I'd like, I've been, am I able to ask you the same? Yeah, of course. Of course you can yeah. ask. Um, Would you I, feel the same? I, I think it depends, as you're saying. It's mm. contextual on the organization. Yeah. Um, in, a, in a mature organization where they understand projects, project management, project controls, perhaps not. Um, because, you know, it, it is understood in the organization. It's yeah. part of their DNA. Um, but let's face it, there are not many organizations around that are as mature as we'd like them to be delivering projects. Absolutely. And so yeah. um, I think there is place for project controls director in many organizations, yeah. one to set the tone, to set the scene, the environment, the understanding, what it all means, what project controls actually means for successful delivery of projects. Because there's there's many, many disciplines within project controls, which we haven't gone down um, in, in this episode, but you know we have in, in previous ones. Um, so... I think it depends, Shane, um, but I think for most organizations, they should certainly consider it as a serious role if they want to be more successful yeah. in their delivery of projects. So that's my answer. Now, now what about, because um, I think there's a there's a strange tension between controls and PMO now, and, and oh, arguably yeah, yeah. we're seeing more project controls arms being set up, but less PMO being established, and that's actually been detrimental. What do you think about that? What's the... What's your well, view it's on funny that? that? Because PMOs again come in all shapes and sizes and types, don't they? They do. You know, yeah. Some are project managing, some don't. Some just do reporting, some do basically do project controls. 
a lot of them, I think, basically do project controls. Uh, I drew up a, a diagram in the, the book with Dennis Locke about how I've seen departments, organisations change with respect to project controls from what was a seminal planning department to project controls department. And in many cases, I think the PMO is just project controls department for a company or a project in a different name. Not always, because PMOs vary. Um, and I haven't picked up that tension because my last job at Costin as PMO director, uh, I was doing what I'd been doing for years. But we had we were doing dashboards and um, business objects and stuff from 2014. So we were early adopters of that. But And that was Costin's credit because they'd got that started before I went in. But it just felt like I was doing what I'd been doing anyway. But I'm sure that's not everybody's experience who's got a PMO. So you probably... Again, because I've kind of been out of the mainstream for four years since I retired from full-time, you've probably got some insights that I'm not fully picking up now of how things are um, with PMOs. But I guess it could be competitiveness. I, I, I don't think there's that much friction in the UK. I think there's a yeah. misunderstanding between the two. Um, I mean, you, you ask some PMO purists, and they'll tell you Project Controls is a subset of PMO. Um my answer is well, it depends again because yeah, it does. Project controls yeah. for me is 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 a more defined profession. You know what you're getting with project controls. PMO is more malleable depending on what the organization it is, needs, right? It and is. so, I feel like PMO is on this evolutionary path that is slightly behind where project controls is. And so, in in, in uh, yeah. terms of maturity, it's it's actually it's actually further behind the growth curve, um, where we're still trying to understand. How do PMOs fit into organizations where we absolutely understand where project controls is today and what it means for projects? So I think, yeah. I think, I don't think it's um, a dichotomy. I think it is actually symbiotic. How that relation exists, whether it's parent, child, or sibling, um, it depends. Yes. But yeah, that's. We usually talk about that about project controls and project services. <laughs> <laughs> and have the same sort of debates, you know. Exactly. And, and you know what? The funny thing is, in training um, about 150 people in the last year, I, I do small virtual training. I have five to eight people on the course. It's really good because they contribute. But actually, when I mention the word PMO, because we get into that on the course of what it, what that it exists. You, you might be amazed at how many people haven't heard of a PMO. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It's amazing. I am surprised. Uh, it surprises me that so many people, this is in engineering construction, actually haven't heard of the, the, the phrase PMO. Yeah. And when, uh, and when you do tell them it's a project right. management office, they still don't have a clue. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the future and where things are going. Yeah. yeah where we're going, bringing yeah. the future, Machine Gun yeah. Martin. There he like is. Crystal Marlin, yeah? yeah. I'm the future. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, good. yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm kind of interested in, as you're now co author of the practitioner handbook for project controls, and you're now responsible for training the, the next generation of, of project controls professionals, how, how do you approach some of the kind of people and behavioral challenges that they'll inevitably face in the industry? You know, the difficult PMs questionable leadership all, all the kind of yeah. stuff in the reasons for project failure and you know you, you've already mentioned um in your experience pms trying to mani manipulate the progress in, in your yeah, time yeah, of Vectel. Yeah, yeah. most people listening similar requests when you're when you're writing the textbooks do you tend to just stick to the factual you know this is how you should do project controls or do you try uh, and 
th- mm. consider that so, and, and maybe in, when you're teaching do you how do you approach that subject oh so so yeah i, I bring i try and bring my own enthusiasm into it because enthusiasm's always worked well with at least a lot of people but not everyone some people find it, find it too much but let's um i'll come back to the book bit in a minute then but firstly uh, it's hard being a project controller because the project controller is often the bringer of bad news. Mm-hmm. Because we know that's true. And the sort of thing I say to them is that's really tough because some people, you know, and I, I learned this myself. If you go to someone and say, You are three weeks late, or you have spent too much money, what are they going to do? They're not going to be very happy with you, are they? Because you're personalizing it. And you may not be consciously personalizing it. It's this unconscious thing, isn't it? So I always tell them to use we language. I always tell them it's hard, and I always talk to them about assertiveness and try and teach a little bit on the the conflict resolution styles. I can't, I don't do a full course on that. We all know the, you know, the Thomas Kilman stuff, yeah. Bit of that, and I also talk about if you're trying to get something done and you can't get it done yourself, and I, I've done this as well. I, I try and teach what I've kind of learned is. It's not about the glory. If you can't get a result and get something done, but you know someone who can for what you need to happen or wish should happen, get them on side and let them. I've had changing project control systems with designers from multidiscipline. If four of them don't want the new system and two of them do, I get the two of them to talk to their peers. They're not going to listen to me. I'm just a project control guy. They don't want to know. (laughs) Exactly. But they might listen to their respective colleague in the same department. But, no, I'd, I'd talk to them just humanly about some of the stuff. Uh, you, and and I also tell them it's much harder to change your, um, other people than it is to change yourself. I used to buy tapes, Brian Tracy tapes and self-esteem tapes, because mm. underneath myself, I wasn't the most confident person, you know. Um, and I admit that to people because that's humility and it's saying you could do that if you want. Don't feel it's something stupid. I'm saying it to you on this blooming podcast, aren't I? Everyone's going to hear it. I've never mentioned it <laughs> on this scale, but I'm not ashamed of it because it helped me. Um, um, but, yeah, it, it's really a case of just talking with people and encouraging and letting them know how hard it is, but there is a way, and you won't succeed every time. There's a bit of that feel the fear and do it anyway. Was that the book by Erica Jong years ago? Um, going way back. Yep. Um, but just talk to people about it and give what tips I can and little anecdotes uh, that come to mind. Um, you know, and build build confidence in people. Um, help them along uh, with stuff. Be a, someone they can come to if things are really tough, and and talk. And and how do you in the textbooks? How do you so, yeah, approach the that? The, the kind um, of people speak to people side of of things. Um, so we've got some chapters, in, we've got some chapters in the book which I didn't write them all. I did write a lot of the techie stuff, yeah. Um, but we've got some stuff on people um, from a guy called Nigel Hibbard, who's a really good person who I have worked with in ACOST for many years, been behind this development. So he wrote a chapter on motivation, and um, Dennis, Lindsay Scott, the PMO lady, yeah, we had Lindsay as well on managing yourself in your career. Um, and it's good that you bring it up because when we developed the Trailblazer program and went out to national survey on what needs to be in it with the, the version we put together with 20 project controllers in eight meetings, we we got so involved in all the tech stuff, arguing about what it should look like and all the different functions on the flip charts and that, 
we forgot the bloody teamwork. And we were told very clearly <laughs> in the responses we'd missed it, which is good, isn't it? People are recognising we'd missed something really important. Mm. So we feel that, and we because we went out the server, we got it put right. So we got a bit of it in the book, but it, 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 to be fair, the bulk of the book is about the the tech aspects from ex, from experience and examples, not from an academic perspective solely. Yeah, there's a bit of both, um, and maybe the people side is. I, th- I think there's been a book done. Um, I can't remember the, the guy's name, uh, but it was Lindsay and someone else. Um, did the People's Project Handbook or something from Gower, the same family of books. It's in the same volume. This is a series of five books. Okay. So um, I, oh, I forget his name. I, he's, I'm linked upon him on LinkedIn. But there's probably a whole load of stuff in that. So we had three chapters with a bit of stuff in, but these chapters are typically eight pages. Okay. So they're not 43 chapters, you know. Mm, so they're not nice. going to do everything. Um, but... Um, the, there is a really good book I read on my dissertation as it's 25 years old on the people side of project management and how conflicting priorities cause arguments and how we deal with them that I would recommend to anyone. And so that's another thing. Recommending literature is something I do to cover anything really that people need to, you know, try and get them to read up as well and study for themselves. If, if there's any recommended reading, if you send it to us afterwards, we'll stick it in the show notes yeah. and, and put some Absolutely. links on that. That'd be uh, well, that brilliant. particular one on people, I'll, I'll make a note to, um, I'll check that out. So people is one thing we mentioned career paths, didn't we? Yeah. Um, so without overwhelming you, I'll send some, just a few bits on people and career paths. <laughs> Perfect. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Uh, for you. Because, at the end of the day, I've always said that if you take projects and project controls, you can give, if you've got a team that isn't really skilled enough, you can give them the best tools and systems in the world and they ain't going to do a better job with it. If you've got a really great people, they don't necessarily need those ideal tools. They will do an even better job, but they'll do a good enough job anyway. Yeah. If they really know what they're doing, I think. Yeah, broadly speaking. Um, but still that people underneath and, and, and so you might say is it what about artificial intelligence yeah so I'm probably missing out on some of what's going on there because I'm a bit out of it but I look at it and I think there's definitely some stuff there um, and maybe you know the Monte Carlo approach is part of that that's been used before but looking at the future I think there's some mileage there I'm not deep into it at all but I do think, how how would artificial intelligence recognise that somebody's misallocated a timesheet booking? We all hate filling out timesheets, and if you book the wrong stuff, your own value is screwed. Well, because it? it's like you're not going to get the right answer. If we're pushing, if we're pushing the envelope, that, if we're pushing the know, envelope, Shane, I'd, I'd say you wouldn't need a timesheet at all. Yeah, there you go. That's a good answer. Yeah. Um, but I'm all supportive of the new things coming in that I'm going to probably miss out on at this neck end. Uh, to some extent, you know. Um, the other thing is a, a word of caution in my mind on the mm. dashboards and data management side, and it's really good that something happened actually today. On the dashboard and data management, and again, with the right feed in, that's good stuff. The data can be validated, but if somebody's going to stand up and talk about it, they've got to have enough skill and experience to know what they're looking at and presenting to people. And the risk is, not in all case, not by any means in all cases. The risk is that that might devalue in some 
companies and places, project controls say, oh, we just need a project controls analyst who can stand up and witter on about this dashboard. You need people who know what they're looking at. And the other thing I don't see often enough is, and again, maybe it's come while I've been away, the commentary that goes with the numbers and the graphs and the charts on the dashboard. If it's just the graphs, charts and, you know, CPI, SPI, bar graphs, overdue stuff, where's the commentary that explains it? you then got to go and find out the story. But it's really hard keeping commentaries up to date. When we've done forecasts from people in the past that said, give me your latest comment as to why that's happening, why it's late, your comment um, or forecast for the future in words, it becomes um, you get past the current date and it hasn't been updated and everything's not there. So it's it's hard. Is that something you would look for as um, someone went as a hiring manager for apprentices and, you know, people who are actively choosing to work in project controls now rather than being plonked into it like us? Are you look, almost uh, looking for people with literacy skills, with presentational yeah, skills, um, or do you just trust the process? They'll, you know, they'll they'll learn on the job. I think people do with the, the right mindset will get there. The first apprentices that I interviewed with three guys, we did a panel interview, which would be quite scary for a 16-year-old in 2007. But um, I did some stuff and the guy said, you do it because we'll just sit and watch because you'll enthuse them. The, the, the school leavers, they've got they had no embedment of what it is in, in, in school, so... But you spot this. You spot the mindset. You can spot the people who've got a chance of making it. Um, but much better if you can put a project controls career in front of people early, uh, clearly before that, while they're at school, and get them interested. Um, mm. And you've got to show them it's a great career, and it is a great career. I'd love to do it all again, actually. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> which ain't bad, is it? <laughs> no, not at um, all. The, the scary thing is, Shane, um, I was saying the other day that I'm working with some data scientists now. And right. um, I, I, we had Excel up, as you do in the Teams environment. And yes. this data scientist was sharing a, an Excel sheet on screen. Mm. And I said to him, I'll just filter on column L. And he said, how do I do that? And the master said, how, how do I filter? A, a oh, right. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. He said, I've never used Excel. He can do Python, JavaScript, all the programming languages. Never use Excel. Oh, right. yeah. It's yeah. where our profession is actually heading these days. But look, um, we spent the best part of an hour with you, and I, I still don't think we've got everything out of you. So we need to have you back. Um, there's so much wisdom Absolutely. from you, and I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed hearing oh, the evolution of, of your career and, and sort of how you know your your perspective on on how organizations and individuals have have pushed the boundaries of project controls as you say myself martin and val our perspective is from where we started and we're we're going oh you know we're behind the curve but from where you are we're you know we've done fairly well and, and that's very very pleasing and satisfying to hear so we'll definitely have to have you back for a part two um well, that's but, nice. I'd love to do that. yeah absolutely but look before we let you go um, are there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Um, right, give me a moment to think. I would just say if anyone's listening who's starting to get an interest in project controls, you won't be disappointed if you get into it because actually it's getting better. The whole environment for doing it is getting better and it's a fantastic career. So don't go and do something else. We need you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Couldn't echo that any louder. Val, any final thoughts from you? 
No, it was great. I think we we are all kind of sitting back in awe of the the number of projects you've been involved in and where you've been, Shane. And it's great to hear your stories. We've only had a very few people on this podcast to share their story, so it'll be immortalized in our archives. And we appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoy I enjoy these sort of things. So thanks very much for having me along. It's been our our pleasure and our privilege, Shane. So yeah. Thank you very, very much. Look, folks, that's all the time we have for this episode. But remember, before you go, please do help us pay it forward by sharing a link to this episode on your favorite social media. Once again, a massive thank you to our guest, Shane Scenario Fourth. And thank you all for listening. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. From me, Val, and Martin, it's bye for now. information blogs or to support our charities visit projectchatterpodcast.com and if you would like to sponsor the podcast get in touch via our website you can also leave us a voice message via our anchor page and let us know if there's something or someone specific that you would like on the podcast Views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company or individual.